Welcome to the podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business based in London and podcasting and broadcasting globally through these podcasts and through EITV on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, clearly, I have serious identity problems, but uh, I'll do my best uh, to be coherent this evening. Um, fantastic turnout. So um, I guess people in the Quango world must be really scared. Um, um, but I mean, I just wanted to begin with a few introductory comments before introducing the, uh, the panel members. Um, I mean, I, I have to admit, and I don't want this to become some sort of temperance meeting, but I have to admit that I myself have become something of a Quango-holic. Um, and, and like all addicts, um, I've got a kind of love-hate relationship with my drug of choice. Um, I began my early career at, at the Observer newspaper as education correspondent, chasing down the quango crats of the education establishment from Ofsted to the then QCA to grant-maintained schools. Um, and I learnt one important truth, that quangos, and particularly watchdogs, uh, can too often risk becoming vastly expensive exercises in stating the obvious. Um, but lately, I've had something of a conversion. Um, having set up New Deal of the Mind, um, we've received some rather generous funding from a fabulous uh, quango called the Arts Council, a magnificent, <laughs> streamlined, finely honed machine. Um, um, and I guess despite um, what's been said before, we do risk ourselves becoming a, a mini Quango. Um, we're lobbying for, we are lobbying for a new approach to creating jobs in the cultural sector um, and even beginning to help deliver some of those jobs for the government. Um, but let me just say, I think that I'm possibly relatively well-placed to see both sides of the argument about the growth of the Quangocracy. Um, this evening's proceedings were prompted in part by David Cameron's speech about the Quango culture in July. And this has led to the kind of widespread panic that perhaps this evening is an expression of um, in the Quango world that the next Tory government would institute a bonfire of the Quangos. In fact, David Cameron, in terms in that speech, said that this was not what he wished to do. Um, the phrase was coined, as people here will know, by Michael Heseltine, uh, and uh, stolen by Gordon Brown. Uh, Cameron, I think, was trying to make the point, though I don't speak for him, that um, he recognises there is a role for arm's-length agencies. I mean, I think, for instance, that the next government should create a new agency for job creation. Um, but in his speech, he expressed precisely, I think, a tendency towards confusion in the heart of this debate. Um, he called for more democratic accountability. But I'd have to say he surely wasn't calling for more power to accrue to the state or local authorities. Um, and a look at the Conservatives' only perhaps substantive policy so far on education suggests that effectively schools, as under the previous Conservative government, um, would become their own mini quangos with severely limited democratic accountability. And I'd be very interested to hear what Douglas has to say about that 
later. So where does this leave us? Um, I guess that's the question for tonight. Uh, you don't really want to hear any more, I'm sure, about what I have to say about this. Um, so I will introduce our extremely eminent panel. Um, and in order of, uh, of uh, not order of precedence, but uh, in, in speaking order tonight, Neil O'Brien to my left is the uh, Director of Policy Exchange, otherwise known as uh, David Cameron's brain. Uh, he was previously Director of Open Europe across party think tank, working for free market reform in, in Europe. To his left is Peter Grant, um, who uh, has, tells me he's uh, worked for a long time in the arts and with lottery distribution, so he is actually at the dark heart of the, of the uh, Quango beast. Uh, he now runs a master's programme in, and I've never heard of this field before, but in grant-making, philanthropy and social investment at the CAS Business School. Uh, Douglas Carswell, who's two to my right, is the um, MP for Harwich and Clacton and the author of The Plan, 12 Months to Renew Britain, which um, I, mean, I think that 12 months is already up, isn't it, Douglas? But, uh... I haven't begun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, he claims that he had a proper job in business before politics, but I'll let him talk about that. Um, to my immediate right is uh, Chief Constable Peter Nehrud, the Chief Executive of the National Policing Improvement Agency, uh, and from its title, you could not imagine a more important job for a quango. Uh, and finally, to my far right is, uh, although not politically, is Philip Stevens, um, rather modestly described himself as a commentator and author. He is associate editor of the Financial Times, but I would say possibly our leading political commentator and columnist. Um, I'm going to ask each of our panel members to spend uh, five minutes outlining their case for, against, uh, for or against quangos, or perhaps somewhere in between. And uh, as I said, we will begin with, uh, with Neil O'Brien. Well, um, thank you very much, um, Martin. Um, uh, I was just speculating with Philip, in fact, at the start, about why there are so many people at an event on quangos, and we were wondering whether it's um, an audience full of people who work for quangos who are frightened, or whether it's an audience full of people who hate quangos and would like to see a bonfire of them, or potentially a combustible mix of the two. And which is presumably why we have the forces of law and order on the stage. Um, um, I, I always believe in a bit of um, audience participation, so I was wondering, could, could you put up your hand if you work for a quango? Excellent. There's quite a, quite a few of you out there. Um, and now, and now could, could you put up your hand now if you'd like to see a bonfire of the quangos? There's a few of you too. Oh, you are a rich mix. Um, well, all of you who work for quangos will be um, painlessly tagged on your way out of the building this evening, so... We'll arrange that later on. Um, yeah, what are quangos? Why do, why, why do we care about any of this? Does it matter? Well, um, the Cabinet Office used to produce a nice breakdown of all these bodies, which they've stopped doing, which is inconsiderate of them. Um, at the last count, there were 827 of these things, um, which were costing the taxpayer about £32 billion. Now, that's about 5% of government spending. Um, other estimates, slightly broader definitions, people say there might be about £64 billion going through the quangos. So this is a non-trivial sum of money. This is, this is money worth having. Why do they attract so much attention? Well, several reasons. One, I suppose, is just that they are, in a sense, easy to mock. There is something about the Potato Council, which is intrinsically amusing and interesting to write about. Um, I think also there, there is something quite fundamental here. I've been doing some polling, which we'll be publishing soon. Um, 
And the public don't really support or accept the need for many of the things which government do apart from the core public services. So they like health, they like the police, um, uh, and they like um, the old ed pension. But most of the government departments, they'd quite happily cut the budget off. And I think, in a sense, quangos are just an extension of that. Thirdly, um, and most recently, there have been a lot of stories about um, Quango's lavish spending, the high salaries, blah, blah, blah. And in a, in a sense, Quango's are just the kind of the new plus ultra of um, everything that people don't like about government in general. Um, that is why, of course, um, one of the few things that Mrs. T and Gordon Brown have in common is that they both, while in opposition, have called for a bonfire of the Quango's. Gordon Brown actually used the words, Thatcher was first. Um, why doesn't this happen? Well, Two reasons that we want quangos. Well, one is that we want a body which is genuinely independent, it's technical, and it can insulate politicians from um, some difficult decisions. Sometimes that is a legitimate thing to do. We want NICE to bring its technical expertise to bear on which drugs we should have, and it's extremely helpful that politicians are not pushed about by daily headlines and there is a body which will take the blame. The same might apply for the Higher Education Funding Council. Um, I don't think it's a good idea for ministers to get dragged into decisions over whether individual universities should shut or stay open. That's not a good way of running things. So you sometimes want a bit of insulation. Though, of course, that's a dangerous thing in a democracy because we also want accountability. And that's the tension here. Second reason you might want a quango is that this, this is the idea of um, steering rather than rowing. You want uh, an executive agency which will go away, do something, concentrate on doing it well, you don't need to um, you know, be steering it. You don't need to be producing new policy. It just gets on with the job. And I would cite maybe the DVLA as a good example of that. It's reduced its spend. It's become more efficient. It's just concentrating on doing the one thing it does well. Fair enough. Um, David Cameron, in his speech, which Martin's already mentioned, set out three tests for any quango. I'm going to set out four, really. The first one is, do we want this service or product at all? Which is the most fundamental, I suppose. Um, I think the reason why culling quangos is seen as popular is because people have in their heads the idea we can just get rid of these things. They're doing something we don't need, and we'll get rid of them. And actually, I think that, that reflects a dangerous and much wider misconception about public spending, which is present across the whole debate. People think that um, if we're going to cut public spending, we've got to lose a function or lose a service. And that's very ingrained in the way people think. Um, Osborne and Gable, when they were writing about this you know, nearly 20 years ago, said that um, when, when government is overweight, what it really needs to do is become more efficient, to go on a diet. In fact, what politicians are always tempted to do is to cut off a few fingers and toes. That's their idea of cutting public spending. And actually, what tends to be the case is that the fat is more kind of marbled through the flesh. It's a bit more complicated than that. Um, I think, in a sense, that's the wrong concept of public spending. I wouldn't be surprised if we could lose a few quangos, but I'd be very surprised if there were a lot we could simply lose. And while there are some efficiency gains in bringing some of these things back into departments, that's not going to produce us that big a saving. Second big test for quangos is about accountability. When is the right time to use a quango and when is the wrong time? Well, obviously any, anybody that's making executive decisions or doing things is constantly going to need to be accountable. But then so do government departments. Everybody remembers Michael Howard's famous interview on Newsnight where he got asked the same question you know, 22 times or whatever it was. Now, that was one of the first outings of this problem where an executive agency had done something. He wanted to blame the head of the executive agency and everybody else wanted to blame him. So they are trappy things and getting the accountability right is difficult. But that is a problem with all government departments. Where I think we don't want to use um, quangos is where we are actually setting policy. It is fine for us to have things which are think tank-like 
And I think maybe the NPIA is a good example of that. But we don't want them to be actually making policy. I think politicians have got to be careful that they don't take their hands totally off the tiller. The, the third big test, I suppose, is about value for money. And that's where I think there is a big problem here. It's not that there are suddenly loads of quangos and there weren't before. It's they've all got a bit fat, I think, is what's happened. Um, so, for example, the Milk Development Council in 97 used to have four members of staff. Now it has 44, and it spends £12 million a year. The Electoral Commission, uh, its budget's gone by, it's trebled from £7 million in 2001 to £24 million now. It's got 156, pe- 156 people working around the corner from here, and it is not at all clear to me what they are all doing all day. Um, of course, on the salary side, you can ask some legitimate questions too. There are 68 quangos which have chief executives earning more than Gordon Brown, earning more than 200000 a year. And that is quite a lot of money. So I think the value for money thing is going to be central in terms of um, the bonfire of the quangos. Not so much a kind of bonfire of the quangos, really more a kind of, um, a kind of sauna of the quangos in which they are gently heated and encouraged to lose weight. Um, the last point, I suppose, is about the kind of proliferation and duplication of these things. Um, I, I up very shortly. There, there are now eight quangos doing things in, um, in directing training. There's the AACS, there's the JACQ, there's the NAS, the NES, Ofqualy, QECDA, the FPA, and the YPLA, and I have no idea what any of them do. Anyone um, here from any of those things? No, no, none of you are from the alphabet soup. Um, and, and we have bizarre conflicts. So the, the, the Potato Council, my favourite quango, um, is constantly encouraging us all to eat more spuds, whereas other health quangos are saying this is not such a good idea. So um, big questions about quangos. It's not as simple as some people would have you believe. There probably won't be a bonfire of the quangos, but there are some legitimate questions about where we should use them, and there are some legitimate questions about efficiency and slimming down the quangos. Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil. And um, if we could now move to uh, Peter to uh, justify his long history as a quangocrat. Well, I'm not sure if I'm going to justify it, Martin. Um, I, I did work for quangos for a bit um, in the arts and uh, then for lottery distributors. And, um, but I'm also a bit of a historian as well. And actually, the, the Potato Council is one of our longest established quangos. It's been around for a very long time. Um, and now I'm an academic, you won't be surprised to hear that I'm probably going to sit firmly on the fence on this. Um, the first thing I think to be said is that Quangos, I think, NDPBs have definitely expanded beyond their original purpose. Um, they now cover a vast multitude of organisations carrying out some functions which it might be argued would be more properly carried out more closely associated with government, and the ones that I've been involved with possibly examples might be UK Sport. Sport is an executive agency of many governments in Europe. Uh, The Gambling Commission might be another one. There are others which possibly could be better, carry out their functions even more appropriately if they were completely independent of government. Um, The Parole Board, certainly one of those, uh, held back by its um, designation as an NDPB, the lottery distributors as well, and, and certainly possibly the big lottery fund, uh, my final employer in the, in the lottery world, could perhaps carry out its function better if it was totally independent. Um, why are there these problems? Well, certainly accountability has been mentioned. I think I won't touch on that. I'm sure others will, will talk about it more. I think there are a lot of issues over governance with NDPBs, 
and issues that aren't always clear and boards that are uncertain of their role. Um, some boards seem to think that they are an, an absolute extension of the executive, that they are there to carry out every first bidding of government and every whim of ministers. That certainly shouldn't be the case. Um, others have strayed in the opposite direction, um, thinking that they are completely independent of government, that they have the power to change government policy and uh, rather than to, to act in, in the role to carry out government policy at, um, uh, at a distance. And where that's happened, that has often led to their demise. That's the demise of the NDPBs, not the demise of the board members. Um, so there have been examples of, of NDPBs that have, that have disappeared. Um, the community fund, uh, the lottery distributor, the community fund being a, a good example. Um, so there are some problems. There are too many of them. They do cost too much. I would certainly agree that value for money is a serious issue. Um, I wouldn't like to overstress it, but the current big lottery spun, uh, fund... Uh, spends something like three times the amount of money that it did when I was in charge of operations and it distributes less money. Now, I don't think that's terribly efficient, but then I would say that. Um, but before we build the bonfire, I think there are three other questions um, which uh, haven't been mentioned yet, which I would bring up. The first question is, what is it, that the, what is the function that requires carrying out? Having decided that there is a specific function, what is that function? And then the next question is, can an intermediary body between government and the public add value to that function? Now, to take an example, I think that the, on the whole, the lottery distributors have added value to the function of distributing lottery funding. Government has been absolutely awful at giving away money. Grant-making is considered to be a, a tiny and unimportant function of government. Every time governments try to do it themselves, they do all sorts of things completely wrong. They haven't got any idea about the process. They put the wrong people in charge, take ages about it, and reinvent the wheel several times over. I think, on the whole, the lottery distributors that have now been around for getting on for 15 years have done a pretty good job. They've added quite a considerable amount of value to that process. So, can they do that? And the third question is after you've answered those two in the affirmative, what governance arrangements will best assist that function and value? Now, in some cases, I have no doubt that that will mean uh, a quango, an NDPB. In others, it might mean something else. And I'm not even certain that in this country we've actually got all of the uh, different models of potential governance in place for all of those intermediary bodies. I think that we should take a step back historically and look at what those functions are and to say, how can we best carry those out as we go through the 21st century? The Potato Council was a great organisation when it was formed back, I think, I believe, at the time of the First World War. I'm not so sure that it carries out that function so well today. So finally, uh, I, I would just say um, that I would agree with Louis Sullivan, the man that first coined the phrase, form follows function, um, and say that that's what we should be doing with NDPBs. Don't build a bonfire yet, but let's look fundamentally about the way in which they operate. Thank you very much. Well, poor old potato council, I say. Um, 
Uh, Douglas, is there such a thing as a, a good quango? Sometimes. Um, despite the promises of, of successive politicians um, to reduce the number of quangos, um, the number of quangos has increased. Um, Michael Heseltine talked about the bonfire of the quangos first. In October 1996, Tony Blair talked about, I quote, consigning the quango state to the dustbin of history. Um, July this year, Liam Byrne was promising to crack down on quangos. Promising to have a bonfire of the quangos is, is a cliche in politics. It's something politicians always seem to do, and it's a promise that they don't, frankly, ever seem to fulfil. In order to reduce the number of quangos, I think we need to understand why this is. Why is it that successive politicians for 20, 30 years have promised something and not delivered it when in office? And it's simple. You cannot rely on executive fiat to restrain the executive. You cannot rely on government to curtail government. We need a radically new approach if we're actually going to achieve any of this. And David Cameron talked about justifying their existence, Quangos having to justify their existence. The key is going to be not justifying their existence to the minister, to Sir Humphrey Appleby. The key is that they must justify their existence as they should have always done so, to the legislature, to the House of Commons. Now, our commons is supine and spineless and monumentally useless at scrutinising executive power, and there's a whole agenda for reform on that front. But once you've got a commons that is not in the pocket of the executive, you can begin to put in place the structures of accountability and scrutiny that we urgently and desperately need in order to make sure that the Quango state is reined in. I'm talking specifically about all quangos having annualised budgets and having to appear before the select committees of the House of Commons to justify that, the ability for the select committees to go through those budgets and veto line items of expenditure, confirmation hearings for the senior quangocrats before they're appointed. Um, it might incidentally give our self-serving politicians something worthwhile to actually do when they're in the House of Commons if they were to do this. <laughs> We used to be a democracy justified by election, but we've become a, a quangocracy, a technocracy justified by diktat. There is a loss of faith in politics because so many of the key decisions that affect people's lives, the really important stuff, is made regardless of who they vote for by unaccountable, unelected officials. There is this alphabet soup of quangos, health, education, law and order. It's a, a, an alphabet soup... Um, there are so many of these quangos, they've actually run out of letters of the alphabet. There are two FSAs now, Food Standards Agency, Financial Service Authority. There is an alphabet soup of these quangos. Um, the Taxpayers' Alliance estimates there are, I think, just under 2,000. Others say there are 2,500. I think the difference in the figures is whether or not you include PCTs, but we can all agree there are a vast number of them. They spend billions of pounds. They make key public policy decisions without reference to those that are elected without reference to the taxpayer. Um, as a slight um, detour, um, Max Weber understood that bureaucracies tend to expand to do what suits them. The Quango State does likewise. Um, Antonio Gramsci understood that if you want to achieve leftist aims that you cannot achieve through the ballot box, you do it through the control of the institutions. I would say there is an inherently leftist disposition amongst many Quangos. We have a situation today where remote elites make the decisions, local people are left to take the rap, People are rarely accountable. No one gets sacked. This is how we're governed. It's no surprise that four out of ten people have given up on voting. If we want to restore faith in politics, we have to rein in the Quango state and make it properly accountable. 
The localist agenda over public services will actually answer the question of what to do with many of these quangos. Once you start to have a directly elected justice commissioner overseeing the pursuit of criminals through the streets and through the courts, many of those quangos with respect to um, the police uh, quangos, many of those quangos will simply not be needed anymore. The scrutiny and the improvement of standards will be uh, the preserve of the local electorate. However, you do need some technocratic functions within a state carried out by, by uh, quangos. You do need some quangos. You do need some decisions to be left to experts to take at arm's length from politicians. However, deciding when that should happen and deciding whether or not to have a quango do it and the size of the quango and the budget of the quango, I think we, we, we need to allow those we elect to decide by having, as I said, select committee ratification of budgets, confirmation hearings, um, approval of grant and aid and expenditure. If, for example, we allow confirmation hearings of the Education Select Committee to approve the appointment of the QCA, I don't think that we would have had the SATS fiasco as a perennial problem. I don't think we would see expenditure increase, but competence quite so questionable. Um, Dan Hannan and I wrote a book called The Plan. It was published a year ago, and one of the ideas we put forward was this idea of parliamentary confirmation hearings for quangos and approval for their budgets. It's an idea that's beginning to gain traction in the cent- on the centre-right and, and beyond. Um, we need to recognise that one of the reasons why quangos have grown is not really the fault of the quangocracy. It is, it is, it is, uh, the fault is not in the stars, it is in us, dear Brutus. It is, it is those in SW1 whose knee-jerk reaction when confronted with a problem has time and again been to delegate the decision to the independent panel, the quango. The, the unpopular decision devolved to somebody else to take the blame. Now, we, we like the idea of the expert. We all like the idea of the expert, of a disinterested specialist. Unfortunately, I'd put it to you that no such person really exists. Everyone has prejudices. Everyone has assumptions. And if by expert we mean someone who spent their whole professional career in a particular field, I'd put it to you that they are the last person who we should put in charge of invigilating it. Putting the independent expert and the technocrat in charge of public policy means removing it from democratic accountability. We need to bring the Quango state back under the umbrella of democratic accountability. Finally, there is going to be the most almighty resistance to this agenda. Um, the Quango state will fight back. We already read about certain senior police chiefs who don't like the idea of democratic accountability or the fact that parties should fight uh, elections proposing democratic accountability. Well, one thing I think we urgently need to do is to outlaw Quangos using public money to lobby government. It is a disgrace that the Association of Chief Police Officers, which receives, I think, £18 million a year, or the Association of Police Authorities that receives large quantities of public money can use some of that money to lobby government against democratic accountability. So more democratic accountability for Krangos and some uh, safeguards against them using public money to interfere in the democratic process. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Douglas. Admirably controversial. And uh, the, uh, I never thought I'd be on a platform seeing a conservative politician quoting Antonio Gramsci, but uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, and, uh, and so now we come to someone who perhaps can justify um, the Quango state. It's um, uh, Peter Norwood. I don't like the perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great to follow Douglas. Um, 
and actually we might not disagree about quite a lot of things, actually, so I'll try and pick up some of those points. Um, I mean, I am the, the chief executive of the, the Quango, the one that volunteered to be on this platform, uh, and it was a volunteering, because actually I think there's a really important thing, and, and some people have picked up some of the points about what is and what isn't right to be done in the way that uh, is, is in, in an agency. Um, and it, it might be worth just starting off by saying, well, what are we? What is the National Policing Improvement Agency? Because the title helps a bit, but it doesn't help entirely. Uh, and it's important in connection with something that Douglas said about the balance between central and local government. We, we, we were set up uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, and a little bit later on, I'll just come and talk about the fact that actually there's only one quango left in policing, because one thing we did do when we created was to get rid of all the others. So there is less, not more. Um, and what I did inherit, actually, was some not very good quangos, and there were some lessons from those. Um, what we basically do is, do is we do two things. We run all the national infrastructure for policing, ranging from, if you went out there, the cops that are using their radios, we provide that service, the police national computer, the DNA database, fingerprint database, national missing persons, Bureau, a whole range of, uh, of national operational functions. And then alongside that, we deliver... Uh, for the police service, all of the national programmes that it is sensible to do once. And that's where we come to that balance between central and local government, because I'm very conscious that my existence is around choosing things, and the choosing is with my colleagues and with police authorities, with ministers, with uh, whoever wants to play the part in that decision, around what things does it make sense to do in one place. So, for example, it doesn't make sense to develop a system to remotely transmit fingerprints from the scene to the National Fingerprint Database in 43 different ways. We tried that one. Uh, Charles Clark, I saw earlier on, uh, was, was police minister and knows very well that was a huge waste of public money doing things that multiple, t- multiple number of times. Uh, we've cut the time it takes to get a fingerprint from the scene from 17, d- 17 days to an identification to 24 hours by doing it once. That's what I think improvement is about, something that delivers a genuine benefit. It's done once and it improves performance. And those are the sort of things, same with you wouldn't train senior leaders in multiple different ways, I don't think. Um, Actually, you don't do a National Missing Persons Bureau in multiple different ways. So some of those things, they're justified because precisely the form follows function. You have to think them through. So I think the the issue about quangos is not whether you have them, but they're, they're being really clear about the justification for having something that is separate from the core government department. Uh, and with the best one in the world, I had the benefit of 18 months run-in to uh, the creation of the agency as a Home Office director whilst I created it, which I have to say was a significant eye-opener. Uh, and I'll be quite blunt, I wouldn't put civil servants in charge of running operational things. That is not what they're trained for, that's not what they're good at. Uh, and there's plenty of examples of where that's gone wrong, whereas operational people who understand how to run operational systems effectively seems to me to be the right place to go. So I think there is a distinction between... Uh, people who are trained to do that to that piece, and, I, and, and actually I think some of the things that I run are run better because they're run by people who are, who are good at the operational side of things. Uh, and I think if you went to a large pub, uh, private sector firm, you'd find the same thing. There are three tests, it seems to me, that are emerging in the debate. And we've, we've touched on some of them, but it's worth just picking them out. There's certainly efficiency, and I think that, that for me is the, the number one. I have to be efficient and I have to deliver efficiency uh, for the service. I started... If you look back uh, four or five years ago, the kind of budget envelope for the space that I'm, that I'm in and the things I inherited was nearly a billion quid. We've, more, we've almost cut that by half by crunching the, the 
the, the number of different projects, programmes, agencies, and, and a, frankly, a complete buggers muddle of a landscape together into a single agency. Uh, and there's lots of reasons why you do that from one point. You do not make change in large organisations like policing without joining people, processes and technology change together. If you want to put those as they were in three separate agencies, you end up with what we had, which is a failure to make change effectively. Um, we've, we are, we're driving hard on, on, on efficiencies because it's the right thing to do and it's ploughing every pound I spend is a pound that isn't spent directly on the front line. Therefore, I have to justify every pound. We've, we've for example, found 12.5% savings, cashable savings, not fictional accountancy-type savings this year to plough back into delivering more services uh, for the service. Um, the second one, I think, is accountability. Um, frankly, Douglas, I, I would welcome the opportunity to go to the bar of the House and justify my budget like my colleague in the National Institute of Justice does in the States. Um, frankly, it would be an easier process than having that argument inside the department and it would be more transparent. Um, and, and it would help me in terms of taking the message to MPs about what I do and how I do it and being tested in the, in the, you know, in the fire of that type of debate. I would personally welcome that. Um, I'm, and I'm very happy. I've been to a number of House of Commons committees. I'm very happy. It seems to me that is a core part of my role leading the agency, to be scrutinised, to respond. I, do, I, I respond uh, and provide the, message, the, the information for ministers to, to nearly 500 parliamentary questions a year. It seems to me that is a core part of what I do, is providing information about what I do to the public. Uh, and then the third one, I think, is a critical one, which is a, so, which is a sort of softer one, but I think is increasingly important in this, is trust. I have to be incredibly transparent, and I have to be able to explain to the public how the things that I do... So, for example, that remote transmission of fingerprints means that, you know, if your burglary happens, we could be standing, as we've got a number of examples now, outside the offender's house to collect the laptops as they appear, because we can now do that. We've just done that with a burglary in Surrey um, in a way that we couldn't have done before. I have to be able to explain you know, why it is that an airwave in the London Underground, the communication system in the London Underground, which we delivered, uh, means better services to the public. And, and then I also have to be very careful to think about, and this is the debate with, with Parliament, about whether there are alternatives. As I've said, you could say, put it back in the core department. Personally, I think that's not a good idea. The things that we do are better run by people who understand them and are held to account for their delivery. You could privatise some of the things. Frankly, I'm not sure the public are up for the DNA database being privatised. Um, I think that would be a serious mistake. I think you put that in the public sector and you hold it rigorously to account. Same with the police national computer. I think it's possible you could say that the functions that I do could be shared by 43 police forces. Um, that's not what they say to me. And I think you have to take some account of how local operational services. But I do think everything I do should be subjected to the test. Is it best done once? Or is it best done by 43 locally? I mean, overall, it seems to me this is the right time to have this debate. You know, we have a very significant cliff in public expenditure terms. I have to justify every pound I spend, and, and I'd be very happy to justify it in Parliament um, in a very open way. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. I'm glad we already have uh, a positive practical proposal that's, uh, that's been agreed between some of the panel members. Um, Philip, can I ask you to step in? Please? Uh, thank you. I'm in that sort of awkward position that uh, one always has with the last speaker. Everything's been said, except not by, yet by me. But uh, <laughs> uh, because we've uh, 
heard so much in so many interesting comments. I think I'm going to tear up my sort of carefully, painstakingly prepared script and uh, start off by talking about the EU lawnmower directive. Now, I'm sure that everyone here knows that what the EU lawnmower directive does is it puts a limit on the decibel level for lawnmower motors. And Douglas is too young to know this, but it was a subject of of great controversy in the Conservative Party back in the late 80s and early 90s when Europe was such a a big, big part of our national political debate. And people quite rightly said, you know, look, what on earth is the EU doing telling us how loud our lawnmowers can be? Douglas heard the then Foreign Secretary, who had promised to get the EU out of the nooks and crannies of British life, ordered his Foreign Office officials to find out where on earth this thing had come from. Due diligence was done, and it turned out that this was uh, based on a British proposal. And in fact, it was a British-led directive all the way through. And the reason for it was a simple one. The Germans like their lawnmowers not to make too much noise. They like quieter Sundays. And they were using their national regulations to keep out manufacturers of British lawnmowers. So we wanted a regulation that pushed the decibel limit up and allowed us to sell British lawnmowers to Germany. And we succeeded. But this became an example of the sort of the growing tentacles of Brussels. And I I relate it because it, it seems to me that the debate about quangos is, is often rather like the debate about Europe. There's a lot more, most obviously, there's a lot more heat than light in the debate about quangos. But also, people forget that lots of the things that quangos do, they do because politicians, at one time or another, have asked them to do. It's convenient for politicians. So you'll hear politicians stand up to criticise this quango or that quango, you'll look back through the records and you'll find that the same politicians have suggested. I mean, David Cameron had a go at Ofcom uh, quite recently. Um, he was very ill-informed, sadly, in his attack on uh, Ofcom because he didn't understand that 90% of what Ofcom does is actually rather boring stuff about telecommunications regulation, pipeline regulation, whatever... But he attacked Ofcom for sort of, I think, for trying to set standards, worrying about whether EastEnders had too many swear words or whatever. The reason Ofcom does that, and as I understand it, it hates doing it, it's a very boring, tiresome job replying to all these complaints, is because politicians in the House of Commons, Douglas, want these sorts of rather, I think, out-of-date standards applied. But so I think you have to... When you, when you sort of engage in this debate, you have to step back and say, let's be careful about saying the quangos are accreting all this power to themselves without understanding what politicians have demanded or governments have demanded of them. I think the second thing I'd say is that there are three sorts, it seems to me, of quangos. There are the must-haves. There are, you know, to my mind, we've got to have a competition commission. It would be very odd to have ministers or indeed MPs deciding whether company X could buy company Y. You've got to have, to my mind, a nuclear safety quango, because I think you need the technical expertise. There are quite, there's quite a long list of quangos, which I think most people across the political spectrum would agree are must-have. 
Then there's a, a second category. You could call them nice-to-haves. And you could include nice in that. You might include also the Audit Commission, which is, does a tremendous job, I think. But you don't, you don't have to have it. Uh, the government didn't have to make the National Statistics Office fully independent, but it seems to me that's a very sensible thing. So there's a whole raft of quangos where politicians have discretion, but again, I think there's a fairly, probably a fairly broad consensus um, that most of these, if not all of them, uh, perform a useful uh, function. And then there's the third set of quangos, which are basically discretionary quangos. And they're there for two reasons. In some cases, because politicians, as a matter of policy, want them. So Labour politicians want regional development agencies, etc. Conservative politicians don't. But most of them there seem to me to be there because politicians at one time or another have found them a useful way of palming off responsibility, accountability. Um, and so I think there is where, where one, if one's having a debate about quangos, you need to look most carefully. Where in the structure of our sort of national bureaucracy have politicians said, look, it's just much more convenient for me, for us in the House of Commons or the executive to put this at arm's length and shuffle off the responsibility. I mean, I think it's, some, it's an area, and I, don't, I, want to, I won't go into detail because I don't know enough about it, but, and we haven't got time, but the Home Office uh, is an area worth looking at there. Um, overall, I think it's pretty obvious that I mean, quangos are set up by governments uh, to see opposition's promise to create a bonfire of them. And there's this, sort of, there's this sort of cycle, a natural cycle. Actually, I think it's a very good idea for any incoming government of any of whatever party to say, look, let's have a look at all these organisations to see, one, if they still perform their functions. It seems to me that the potato-growing industry, to use that example, could well run the potato, finance the potato council. Um, so that's very sensible. But I think politicians have got to, as they do that, um, have got to understand that. Um, I've got to look at. I've got to understand the differences and where that's. So, and although I sympathise in general with Douglas's Castle's idea that we need a shift in responsibility from executive to the House of Commons, I'm not sure that that would necessarily um, produce different results. I mean, as I understand it, the Bank of England um, people have to go before the Select Committee regularly, and they made a complete mess of the financial crisis. So accountability to MPs in that, uh, in that instance, so the bank in, indeed is a quango, really, um, didn't help us. But my final thought is I'm sort of slightly worried about what the Conservatives are proposing. Because while on the one hand they're saying, look, we must have what I think is a good housekeeping look at all these institutions, they're also saying we want some more of these. And they're saying, and the ones they want are in category three. I mean, perhaps Douglas can explain, or someone else can explain. I cannot understand why an incoming government wants a fiscal responsibility board, why it wants a bunch of technocrats or outsiders to tell the government how to run its economic policy. Seems to me there's a treasury full of economists, there'll be a chancellor of the exchequer, there'll be a parliament to hold them to account. Why on earth would a government say... We want some outsiders to run all this. 
I think the idea that the Conservatives want to so increase the powers of the Bank of England and other Quango also rather alarms me because it's a diminution of uh, political accountability. So my advice as a, as a neutral observer is that the Conservatives should focus their attention on those quangos, as I say, in which politicians are shuffling off responsibility and shuffling off accountability rather than on those sort of the one or two or three or perhaps a dozen quangos um, that, you know, perhaps you know, we can have a joke about but actually probably do a decent job fairly harmlessly. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Philip. That was, that was extremely clear. And uh, I think I'd like, to, I'd like to throw things open very quickly to, uh, to the people who are gathered here, especially as we want to wind up as soon as possible. Yeah. And I need to say that uh, because of the, uh, the fact that this is being filmed, could people, when they ask uh, questions, stand up, uh, announce clearly uh, who they are and make their question a question? But very quickly before we do that, I was going to ask uh, Peter to rise to the challenge uh, offered by uh, Douglas Carswell, but he did it anyway. Um, but I would like, uh, if possible, Douglas to answer immediately Philip's question that he has asked about why, uh, while announcing, uh, if not a bonfire of the, uh, of the Quangos, at least uh, a little bit of a sauna of the Quangos, the uh, Conservative government uh, looks set to uh, introduce this particular Quango. Let me be clear, I, I speak as a backbencher with all the freedom of a backbencher. Indeed. When it was announced that there was an idea for an Office of Budgetary Responsibility, I blogged that morning saying I thought that if we restored Parliament to doing its job, it would be the proper Office of Budgetary Responsibility. In fact, it would be one that would be elected by all of us. Um, since the time of the Civil War, that was the primary purpose of the Commons. Um, so, you know, I speak as a backbencher, but um, you know, I, I, I can't think of the creation of a single new quango that I would endorse at this time. Thank you, Douglas. Your, your position remains entirely consistent in that case. Um, OK, I'm going to take a question from the lady in the third row here. Please, can you stand up, announce yourself, and uh, ask a question rather than a statement? And if possible, uh, tell us who you're addressing your question to. OK. Lots of things to remember to do. No. <laughs> Nicole Smith from the Institute for Government, uh, which is not a quango, it's a charity. Um, Question for Douglas, but also another one for all the panel, if I may. Um, the Institute has been looking over the last six months at exactly this issue about the governance and accountability of NDPBs and have reached, through our conversations with Quango Krats, politicians and others, a very similar conclusion to the one that Douglas reached about the need for Parliament to take ownership of this uh, area. Um, the problem is that we've also analysed Parliament's existing work um, in fulfilling its existing duty to look at NDPBs, which is part of every select committee's remit, and they don't do it. Um, and the one uh, clerk has said to us that um, uh, it's something that at the end of every parliamentary year they say, oh, well, I won't use the language, but oh, damn, we haven't looked at um, uh, an NDPB yet. We must look at one. Um, how do we challenge that parliamentary culture and get that changed to achieve this? So that's a question to Douglas. question to the rest of the panel is, um, I think the, uh, another part of the problem with reclaiming Quango land, if you like, and actually creating a positive reason to have it, is the language, and can the panel think of a better word than quanga? Excellent, excellent questions. I will allow you two questions. Uh, Douglas, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I was very careful to say that if we're going to get the legislature, the commons, to do the job of holding quangos to account, 
you've got to actually transform the way SW works, because I'm sorry, the House of Commons is monumentally useless at scrutinising executive power. Um, it is, it, it, you know, seven out of ten of the MPs come from uh, safe seats. Uh, there's a culture of self-serving indolence about the place that is just not acceptable. Um, you need to change it, and you need to change it. We have established a precedent that the Speaker of the House of Commons is now elected by secret ballot. Why are the Chairman of the Select Committees not also elected by secret ballot? Do that, and you break the power of the executive instantly. The second thing we could do is change those standing orders, and in the plan we go into some detail about the amendments to the standing orders required to allow confirmation of the budget. I sit on the Education Select Committee, or Children's Schools and Families, or whatever the slogan is this week. If we were able to, if I first of all owed my position to that through the election of all members of the Commons in a secret ballot, um, obviously you would keep the proportional basis. If, if I then had a key role in going through the budget of all these quangos, I'd be far more interested in doing that part of the job, because it would actually mean, if you do it properly, you probably got the same sort of powers as a chairman of that select committee that a minister would actually have if you do it properly. And so I think, actually, by bringing about these changes, you can put a rocket up there. I mean, long term, you need to do something about the fact that 7 out of 10 MPs think they've got a job for life, but that's a broader question that involves open primaries and the right of recall. But, you know, for, for now, I think there's a lot we could do to actually change it. You, you need to, to change the House of Commons as well as change the, the, the way it holds um, uh, Quangos to account. Both, both need to happen, and they need to happen quickly. Okay, anybody have a good idea for a better name for Quangos? I, I think I slipped it in mine. It's intermediary body. I think that's what they are. There's some uh, between government and the public. So. Not very catchy, though, is uh, it? Not, very, <laughs> not, not as catchy as Quango, but <laughs> something along those lines. So. But IB is all right. <laughs> anybody else? No? That's it. That's our, that's our ideas. I'm sorry. That's, that's all we could come up with. Um, I've always found it interesting that we love NGOs, but we hate Quangos. But uh, yeah. there you go. Um, I'm going to take a series of questions, I think... Gentleman at the front, gentleman at the back, and uh, someone with a hand up over there. Yes, the lady in the turquoise jacket, who may have some things to say about Thanks. Um, Mark Thompson, I do the Mark Reckons political blog. Um, I have a question for Douglas and then a general question, if that's okay. Um, and my question to Douglas is, um, basically, all, his, all your solutions to um, the problems that you perceive with uh, Quangos um, are kind of predicated upon the fairly radical ideas that you have in the book that you wrote with Daniel Hannan. Um, so, for example, you say that you want um, the Commons to scrutinise the budgets and so forth of the Quangos, um, but that can only happen once the Commons, the, le- the legislature is kind of properly independent and can scrutinise things properly, and you say that locally elected police chiefs, etc., would do away with the need for some of the functions of quite a lot of the Quangos, and I presume you mean further local devolution would do away with other Quangos as well. Um, the, the fairly radical ideas that you have either might not happen at all or may take many, many years to come in. So I wondered whether they are your only ideas for how to resolve the Quango problem, um, given that it could be perceived as a fairly urgent problem if, um, you know, in terms of the financial situation at the moment. Um, and the more general question I have, um, um, as the gentleman on the end um, kind of referred to, uh, the, it seems that when the heat's on, create a quango. And I just wondered, I mean, that's like the example that you were describing. There's a, there's a real crisis with the, get, get the question, there's, there's a real crisis with the financial markets. So David Cameron says create a budget, uh, fiscal responsibility. I just wondered what the panel think about how you can stop politicians from the knee-jerk response to create something that they then don't have the direct responsibility for. Thanks, sir. 
Uh, Alistair Smith, University of Sussex and Declaration of Interest. I'm a member of a public sector peer review body. I'd like to direct my question to, to Philip, who seemed rather dismissive of his third class of quangos where politicians choose to pass responsibility on to independent bodies and to suggest that, that that's actually positively a good thing and contrast one huge success and one huge failure. The huge success is in the middle of the current financial crisis, everybody still seems to accept that the creation of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee was one of the big uh, successes of the current government in, in the design of policy, that it's sensible for politicians to hand over interest rate policy, monetary policy, to an independent committee, and that has worked reasonably well in a very difficult financial environment. Huge political failure is the, the, the current row over MPs, expenses, ministerial pay, and all of that, which derives from politicians being unable from Margaret Thatcher through Gordon Brown onwards to, and of course the House of Commons themselves, to stand back from the setting of politicians' salaries and MPs' pay. Uh, and the inability to stand back it lies at the root of the problems with MPs' expenses. And we see it again this week with David Cameron making, to my mind, not very well judged uh, proposals for tinkering with the cost of MPs' meals and, uh, and with ministerial salaries in a situation where it would be very, very much better for politicians to have the sophistication to say this is all much better left to an independent body whose recommendations we will accept without qualification and without modification. Is your question, is there such a thing as a good quango? What, what, what is your specific I, I, my question? My question is that the, the process which Philip discussed in a rather dismissive way is actually positively, a, politically a very good thing for politicians to take their hands off, quite deliberately, a range of sensitive issues. Okay, uh, final question in this round of questions, please. Do we have a microphone? My name is Barbara Young. I'm uh, past chief executive, chairman, uh, member of umpteen quangos in my time. I'm currently the chairman of the Care Quality Commission, which is the regulator for quality in health and social care, appointed uh, after a pre-appointment parliamentary interview, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and I hope the Health Select Committee did as well, um, and a season ticket holder in front of the Public Accounts Committee to account for expenditure in the several quangos that I've uh, being chief executive of. Um, the, the question I really want to ask all of the panel, e except uh, Douglas, because we know his views on this one, um, is this issue about quangos not being allowed to think. Um, it does seem to me that most quangos are expert in something, have considerable contact not only with the grassroots of some public enterprise, but also with what the public think about it. Uh, and the it would be a real shame, it seems to me, uh, not to use that expertise, wisdom and knowledge to help shape public policy. I don't think that is, in Douglas's inimitable worlds, uh, Quango's lobbying the government with public money and in interfering in the public process. I think it's using knowledge that's been gleaned at public expense to help uh, with the thinking through of public policy. So perhaps the rest of the panel could reassure me that in the future... Uh, we're not going to be spending lots of money on folk like me who then are not able to articulate any views about policy whatsoever. 
Thank you very much. Yes, I mean, can we can we take those questions in reverse order? As that was a challenge to all the panel, apart from Douglas, has already said plenty. Um, can we start? Oh, okay, would you like to? Yeah, I mean, I mean this, thing, this point about the, where um, thinking ends and lobbying begins is is a very good question mm. um, and difficult. Now, um, at one end of the spectrum, we might say that if the NPIA produced a paper on four different options for a national police radio system or something, that's exactly what we want them to do. At the other end of the spectrum, if the BBC employ more than 100 people lobbying for charter renewal and for more money, that, that is, in my mind, fairly clearly lobbying when they attend party conferences. We, we want them to come up with the intellectual goods, but I don't think we want them to do the job of politicians, effectively, uh, and to try and actively lobby rather than just think. So I think that is the distinction. Do you agree, Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for me that there's, there's a line between... That thinking independently about the future of the police service, and then when I when, when and then moving that into 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 funding major programmes, I think the, I mean I've, I think I have a job in providing independent research and independent thinking that, that draws from the police service and not just in this country but worldwide. So one of my it seems to be one of the jobs that was specifically embedded in my uh, legislation was about taking the best from the rest. So. Looking, looking around the rest of the world and drawing in ideas and that sort of thinking, it's, I think it's crucial we have space to do that because that's how you improve a service effectively. But it's when I then come to spend not that small amount of money which is around research, which seems to me that we can, we can designate as research, but when I spend that large amount of money which is about converting the, the programme into, into some sort of reality, then I definitely need, it seems to me, the minister, the minister and, um, and, and, and those are responsible and accountable for the, for the, for the funding to, to Parliament to take account. Now, obviously, Douglas's suggestion would give me, would put me in an interestingly different space in those terms, but I, I, I would differentiate between the sort of small function that does the thinking, big function that does the, spend, that does the big spend, and I think there I do need better accountability. Thank you. Uh, Philip, would you um, yeah. be prepared to address the question from the back? Yes, I wasn't trying to say that, that all, the, all the crime goes or... Why don't we just call them public agencies or something in the uh, third category um, were bad. I just was trying to point out that there are some which are really discretionary. I personally would support the Arts Council continuing, but it's not vital uh, to the life of the nation. Um, Pay review bodies, I think you could argue either way. What I was saying, though, is I think you can have a fairly... I mean, an incoming government... um, could do a fairly rigorous exercise in saying, among these quaggers, which ones do we think actually still perform a useful task, which we can then justify because of their technical expertise or whatever, and which are organisations that we use to shuffle off responsibilities. Take your own organisations. I mean, there's something to be said for in setting the, the salaries of top civil servants or the military or whatever, to have, to bring, bring together some expertise. I think there's probably also an argument that ministers in their big departments could bring in people, you don't have to set up a separate quanga, and discuss, you know, what the military, you know, what generals should be paid or what Gus O'Donnell, the cabinet secretary, and then come out and say, having discussed it with the experts, this is what we've concluded. And I think, you know, pay review bodies have, I think, in the past sometimes been a sort of shield for politicians. You know, we've got to do that because that's what the pay review bodies. Occasionally they'll say, no, we're not going to do that because we're going to be show how tough we are. So, but I'm not, you know, I wasn't trying to be sort of ideological about, about it and saying get rid of all the, you know, all the discretionary ones. I just think there's, there's the place for rigour 
in the examination of the purpose of organisations. Thank you. Well, I, I will let Douglas come back on the direct uh, challenge from uh, Mark Front. Um, but uh, to, I, I think it would be good to answer Mark's uh, general question, which is perhaps one for the historian. Is there a way of stopping uh, politicians from using, as I understand it, from using uh, these agencies as a uh, convenient way of shuffling off responsibility? Not if you're going to fetter the discretion of Parliament, but I, I, I suppose if you move towards a situation where they were under greater parliamentary scrutiny along some of the lines that, that Douglas has been talking about, then before you set one up, you could actually justify that through that process and have some sort of scrutiny that says, independent scrutiny that says whether or not something already exists that could do this job or whether it is a new function that requires a, a, a different organisation. But I don't see how you could totally stop it because immediately, you know, the first time that something difficult comes along that, some, that the government wants to shuffle off, it will find a different way of doing it. Uh, I don't know whether Douglas wanted to respond to the ideological point that was made or, or this general point. I mean, I, I think generally all the panel have expressed the view that there are some quangos that are a good thing and that we need. Um, there are some quangos that perhaps could be slimmed down and in some cases merged and made to do a better job. The point is that I don't think any of us in this room, and I don't think everyone in Parliament knows in perpetuity which those are and <coughs> when those quangos should be. By having the heads of the quangos having to annually appear before the select committee of the House and argue their case, that question would be asked by the people's representatives on an annual basis. And I think we would therefore get better quangos doing wiser jobs. And I suspect in some cases we would find that some quangos didn't get their budgets approved and they disappeared. The key decisions as to what quangos we need and what tasks would be asked annually by those we elect. It's not being asked by those we elect at the moment. And all I'm saying is that the, 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 the... ongoing process of asking these questions, what quangos do we need and what do we need them to do and how much should it cost us, should be asked by our elected representatives annually. It seems pretty uncontroversial. I know Peter wants to come in and then I'll take a, another round of questions. Yeah, there's two things. First of all, that, um, in terms of stopping politicians doing, or, or making them less anxious to, to, to dump stuff, actually the reality is for most NDPBs, and mine included, you actually need primary legislation to set the thing up, so it has to go to Parliament. I appreciate Douglas points about the perfections or imperfections of the parliamentary process, but I mean, my legislation went through a fairly substantial process of, uh, of readings and, and uh, scrutiny. Of course, what you could do is to set a time limit on, when the, on how long the legislation actually lasts for, which is something we don't do in this country but is done in other places, so you could say it's five years and we'll review it properly. And there is a discipline, it seems to me, that, that isn't there, which would stop one other thing that I think you can criticise um, agencies for, uh, I think agency is a better word, and I'll come back to another possibility. Um, but the, but, the, but the, now that is that there is, a, there is a tendency, not just for, for dumping, but for, for, for scope creep. And I think that's the one, that, um, that's the one which is difficult for the, for the agency as well, because you, you know, you're, you, people think you're doing one thing, and you do a series of other things, and it also looks as if you're growing in budgetary and people terms as well, when actually what you're being asked to do is a whole, whole load more things. So if you had a process whereby... There was a clear process of bringing back the legislation to examine whether it's done, and that's partly scrutiny before committees, but it could actually be a process of literally timed review, which would actually look at... Because I think, from personal experience, the thing changes quite dramatically over three to five years. It will be a healthy process, and I personally support it. And what's your other possibility? Well, there was a lovely article back in the early 80s that, com- that, had, that compared quangos with mangoes, mangoes being mutually non-effective groups of organisations. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's the mangoes we need to get rid of. 
Uh, so, uh, another round of questions. Uh, gentleman in the front here, another gentleman in the front, and a lady at the front. Um, I'm David Curry. I'm former dean of Cass Business School, but more importantly for this, uh, the, uh, until six months ago, the founding chairman of Ofcom, which, as Philip has noted, was, has been in the target of this debate. And my question, I suppose, rather provocatively, is shouldn't Ofcom be an exemplar rather than a target? Um, I took the job because we merged five into one, which seemed to be a good thing. We cut cost on inception by 10%. We cut cost in real terms every year since by 5%. Um, and, 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 that, and we delivered, I think, better quality of, of regulation. So question, shouldn't we take that as a, a good record? And on the salary question, um, firstly, let's compare like with like. Um, defined contribution pension schemes in Ofcom. Um, fi- uh, f- uh, final salary pension schemes in, rest, in much of the rest of the public sector, including politicians and including the Prime Minister, as we know. That makes a difference. But even having done that, we paid a bit more to get really good people who came from a number of sources, but including from the sector, who understood the business and therefore could deliver good regulation. And I believe could run a tight ship that actually delivered the cuts in expenditure and the increases in efficiency that I've, I've cited. So could we make it an example uh, and, and learn from it rather than a target? Interesting. So we need a mic here. Thanks. Uh, Usman Khan uh, from Matrix Knowledge Group. And um, to declare an interest with Peter, um, currently working with MPIA in terms of professional services support. And just maybe it's a, a, a challenge, a reflection and a challenge in terms of uh, Quango's good or bad, that uh, Matrix Knowledge Group is there to try and help organisations improve value for money in the public sector. And over 20 years, if, if, if I in 10 years of that were, were to reflect in terms of looking at Quango's and looking at the wider government, I'd have to say on the balance, working with Quango's, they have a sharper focus in terms of what they want to use support for. They have a greater ability to be able to get value for money from the support that they provide, and they actually have a greater sense of how they actually make use of the support they get. Now, you're not going to make it one side or the other, but but the challenge would be to, where you do get that, could you not be able to build on on, on the strengths of that in terms of of quangos rather than looking always at, at, at the negative side? Thank you very much. UD Thompson. Uh, simple question, I think. For what organisation do you come from? Uh, I'm from. I'm a member of the public, interested member of the public. Thank you. Uh, sim- a question for Douglas. How would the select committee relate to the ministers who are ultimately responsible for the delivery of the services for which the Kwangas have been formed? Okay. Thank you very much. I mean, perhaps uh, one by one. Um, uh, I would be very interested to... I mean, I won't ask uh, Douglas to, again, dissent from, uh, from his front bench line on, uh, on Ofcom as a model, but uh, could, could we use Ofcom as a model? Um, I think... I mean, can I... Because yeah, I brought it up yeah. first. Um, I mean, that's why I really try to use the EU analogy, because it's easy to say, look, you know, here's a lawnmower directive. This is complete madness. Yeah. And in a way, if you say Ofcom, and Ofcom at the time was talking about top slicing of the licence fee, and they do produce every month this terrible 
massive document which lists every complaint that they've received. And they have to respond. If you call up and say, I don't like the level of swearing on EastEnders, they have to investigate it. So when you, when you sort of take a look at it, you think this is complete madness. And then if you spend a little bit of time, you find, one, it's a small proportion of their work, and most of it is very necessary regulation, which can't be done by ministers, just can't be moved into Whitehall because they'd be arbitrating between B Sky B and BT and whatever. Um, but the second thing is you realise they're doing all this other stuff because it's laid down in legislation passed by the House of Commons that says... If Mr. Smith rings up and complains about violence before, the, you know, in a programme ahead of the watershed, you, Ofcom, have to do a report, publish it, and come to a conclusion. So, in a sense, you know, I think Ofcom is an example. I think it is an effective um, uh, regulator. And, in fact, there are some Conservatives, notably Ken Clark, who would like actually to expand Ofcom and put the postal services into Ofcom because it's been effective. So I think it is good. But it, it's, a, it's an example, too, of, of, of this sort of politicians sort of wanting someone else to do something and then when they do it, throwing up their hands and saying, this is ridiculous. Um, David and, and the gentleman over there, in effect, were saying, aren't there good quangos that do a good job? Um, if you believe so and you're the head of the quango, you should make your case before the relevant select committee. I have to say, with respect to Ofcom, if I was on that select committee, I would not vote to ratify the reappointment of the head of Ofcom, and I would not vote to ratify the budget until serious issues affecting non-state-funded broadcasters and the interference in how they operate are addressed. Um, but, you know, that's democracy for you. Um, the um, lady in the front row talked about how the select committees would relate to ministers. Now, I'm slightly going um, even further than anything that appeared in the plan. If it was up to me... Once you've got your select committees that are properly democratically accountable to the people and MPs democratically elected rather than coming from safe seats, I would have a situation where select committees would be required to confirm the appointment of ministers. But I would get rid of the idea that a minister had to be a parliamentarian. Um, that would uh, achieve a separation of powers without the sort of uh, a revolutionary upheaval we're often led to believe that would be required to achieve the separation of powers. It would ensure that lawmakers and legislators did the job of holding government to account, and government got on with the job of making sure that the best ministers were in, in the role. Um, it would also incidentally actually make being a select committee uh, chairman um, a really important role, rather than a sort of dumping ground for failed ministers. Yes, I thought I'd try and bring several things together in one. I mean, addressing David's point and coming back to a couple of points made by um, Philip and Peter. I mean, I don't think any organisation does everything it does equally well. And one of the reasons that it doesn't do that is mission creep, the, the point that Peter mentioned. And certainly in the examples that, that I'm aware of, I mean, the, the big lottery fund, then the, the opportunities fund, did some things very well when it had the opportunity to add the value that I was talking about. Um, our programmes, for example, on green spaces or healthy living centres, I thought were excellent because we were able to develop those and respond to what the public needed in those areas. We were totally useless at buying cancer equipment for hospitals. We couldn't add any need for that at all, and that was taking it beyond what we were supposed to be doing. So I think the real problems occur when you start moving beyond the real nature of what you were trying to do. And one of the points that, that um, 
Philip made, his three sorts of quangos, I wonder if those sorts of different sorts of quangos should have different relationships with government and have different governance arrangements. Again, some of them, potentially some of them, might be better in the private sector. Some of them might be better in the voluntary sector. But I think that there might be scope for looking at that, those different sorts of functions being um, governed in different ways. Okay, uh, we are going to wrap up uh, shortly. I just wanted to maybe um, put one more question to everybody to, to, to summarise. I mean, my, my personal experience of, of making several documentaries with Ofcom is that Ofcom's regulatory um, stipulations uh, make journalism as a broadcast investigative journalist um, a much, much stricter discipline than it does when uh, you are working under the Press Complaints Commission Code. And uh, as such, I would say that uh, there are examples of um, excellence within, within uh, Ofcom. And similarly, to follow on from the, the point made, made from, the fl- from the floor, um, the experience of dealing with uh, major publicly funded arts organisations has generally been a good one. I don't think, however, that that makes... Um, I don't think that that is making any greater point than the point made by Douglas that some are good and some are bad. Um, and I would uh, argue that we have seen uh, successively a bonfire of, or calls for, calls for a bonfire of the civil service. Um, we've certainly in the past, under previous Conservative governments, seen calls for bonfires of local authorities. And we are now witnessing... Um, a certain kind of bonfire of, of MPs as well, there might be perhaps an argument, and perhaps this is what's coming from the panel today, for actually governments doing the job better, promising simply that they will deliver efficient government, uh, quangos or whatever we wish to call them, uh, doing their job properly, civil servants doing their job properly, and local authorities doing their job properly. That's um, me on my soapbox. I was just wondering whether each of our panel members, very quickly, um, so we can get back to networking, um, could make one proposal, one single proposal, ideally in one sentence, for improving the state of play that they have not made already. And perhaps we should go in the, the, the order that we, we began in. Um, if I had um, a single sentence, it would be the restoration of the idea of limited government. Because I do think that the debate about quangos is really a reflection of some more fundamental debates about the scope of the state And I think over the last 10 years, we've totally lost the idea of limited government. Government is responsible for everything. If there is a problem, government must act. And being brave, being grown up, and having a different relationship with the electorate where we're not churning the new cycle and we're admitting that politicians can't do everything, that's the really underlying issue here. Yeah, we haven't even mentioned legislation, of course. I'd I'd pick up on one point that um, Peter made, and I think it's that where you want an operational process carried out government isn't any good at it. You need another sort of body to do that. Thank you. Uh, I probably suggested far too many ideas, my goodness. uh, I I would just say this. I think the internet is going to, you know, this debate and so many of the presumptions in it, I'm sorry, I think pre-internet debates and discussions, the expectation of the public and of society in the age of of Clay Shirky and, and, and the long tail, the expectation that officials and regulators and quangocrats can make decisions for us is breaking down. Just to touch on the broadcasting issue, 
you know, there was a time when there were two broadcasters, then there were six. Now there's 60 million broadcasters. You cannot regulate it using your analogue regulation system. You need to change and, and accept that the Quango state cannot carry on as it has. Peter? Yeah, I, uh, think I, I think I'd opt for a, a change of title, which actually is more barbecue than bonfire. I think the debate tonight is about being much more precise uh, and, and choosing, and maybe some things need to be seared and preferably not too much burnt. My experience of barbecues is that's never a good thing. <laughs> um, mine, I would have a plea to politicians in general to accept responsibility and, where possible, preserve direct accountability and a plea to David Cameron in particular not to set up the biggest quango of all through an NHS commission. I think the health service should properly be the property of or the regulation of, of politicians rather than some giant new quango, as I understand is proposed. Let's not talk about the NHS. OK, well, I mean, I'd like to thank you all here for, for coming tonight. Fantastic turnout, as I said. I'd also like to thank our hosts and I have to, Editorial Intelligence, Cass Business School, Policy Review Intelligence and Policy Exchange. Uh, and above all, I'd like to thank our panellists, who I think have given us a huge uh, quality of debate. And I know Duke... Sorry. <laughs> and I know Julia Hobsbawm from uh, Editorial Intelligence wanted to say a few... Well, thank you. That forbidding building and in fact you came to a club, a, a sort of contemporary club that we run to talk about the issues of the day and to have a conversation and it's interesting but not surprising that you're not all from Quangos here this evening. It seems that you're all here because you want to talk about the issues of the day and if some, in some respects the intersection between policy and philosophy about what is going on and I think the word that underscores this debate is, is not just quangos, it's the question of delivery. And that, to my mind, preoccupies all our members across politics, business, academia, public life, technology. And a pilot that Editorial Intelligence is undertaking with the Cass Business School, and we would very much like your involvement, and I expect we'll be knocking on the door of the panel is a discussion unit called D for Delivery about how business and the public sector can learn best practice. And, and I think Peter Nehrud is probably one of the finest examples if his performance this evening is anything to go by. So if you like this kind of discussion and debate, you might like to come to events this autumn on subjects as varied as the pandemic, entrepreneurship. You might like to come and hear James Pennell speak Zach Goldsmith, Harvey Goldsmith, no relation. But it remains my job to thank you all for coming, to thank Lucy Tatton-Brown and the team at Editorial Intelligence, and to thank Policy Exchange, who were sort of first in the mix when we thought of this event, Policy Review Intelligence and Cass Business School, and to say that thanks to Policy Review's hospitality, there is more food and more drink and more conversation. Thank you. <laughs>